his maybe how to how to how to keep walking through the valley of tears how to how to how to persevere so let me pray i'd like to read first corinthians chapter 15 verses 50 through the end of the chapter and then we'll begin uh, the sermon um, officially lord you're good and your love endures forever the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. And it's to your word that we want to tune our ears and our hearts this morning. Pray that we would learn uh, and trust more and more in the goodness of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that we would know that your word is good and can be trusted and obeyed, and that there is life forevermore with those who have entrusted their lives to the Lord God. And so give us Give us hope in the valley of tears. Give us eyes to see when things seem dark. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is God's word I'm reading uh, from the New International uh, Version. This is God's word. Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will, we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if there's any verse that I have written the, the address to in my life, more than any other, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I don't really have, if I could claim a life verse, it would have to be this one just because I write it a lot. Because I want to live this. I want to believe this verse. I want to feel this verse. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I assume 90% of anybody who shows up on a, on a Sunday morning uh, really wants to honor Jesus. Uh, the 10% of you here because your parents brought you here or your spouse or your mother-in-law or something and you're just trying to stay in their good graces. I get that. Been there, done that. So here's the thing. I know that some of you want to be really good parents. I know you want to engage with your kids. You want to raise them in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Uh, you want to set a good model of godliness. You want to show humility. Um, and that, but like you, you have days like me where I find myself finding everything I can do to avoid my kids. Like a project or something. Uh, oh, my phone's really interesting again. You know, so I want to be this dad. I want to be engaged with my kids. I want to set them as a good example. And yet, I, I take my eyes off that vision. 
Same thing, there's husbands in this room that you want to love your wives, you want to lay down your life for them, you want to be sacrificial, you want to be romantic, you want to be you know, this, you know, this strong shoulder for them. And yet there's things that come out of your mouth that you regret ever came out, and you disengage, and wives here, you want to you build up your husbands, you want them to feel respected, you want to respect them, you want to honor them, you want them to succeed to the places God has called them, and yet you've gone to bed at night just shaking your head, man, and just knowing that you, you did not bring any life or any air into the wings of your husband that day. I know there's, you know, there's single people that want to, are, are waiting for God to bring them, a godly person to marry, or a single person that's just even content in their singleness, and you kind of have this vision of this strong, faithful, single life, and yet you find yourself drinking a little too much wine at night, or Netflix binging for too many hours, and you're like, what I hope that we can see in 1 Corinthians 15 is some truths about who God is, realities of the universe that God has made, that if we really believe these things, and we really feel these things, that some of the visions we have for walking with God in these different areas that God has called us, we might walk with a little more faith in the goodness of God and, and the security of his word this week. That's my hope for you. That's my hope for me. That I would believe these things, and I would leave, live these things. So, I want to say there's like three interlocking realities. You can't, if you separate them, they don't work. But if you, if you lock these realities together from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then when you walk out this door, you might feel and live 1 Corinthians 15, 58. To stand firm, to give yourself to the things that matter in the end. Think about this. I love, um, I love overhearing teenage girls talk. Um, and I try not to interrupt because I just think they get so excited. They're so emotional. Like boys just say, yo, dude. And they're like, dude, you know, I get it. Yeah, I feel you, man. And that's it. Conversation over. But when the, thing I, the thing that I, the, the, the term that existed in my mind is I, I can, I don't know when I heard it, but I heard some 15-year-old girl talk about uh, like going to like a volleyball camp and, when, when, and it was hard, it was difficult. But then she said, but it was like totally worth it. Like, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it's totally worth it. All right, so that's where I want to get there. So first, interlocking reality right here at the beginning that we have to know in this valley of tears is that these bodies must be changed. These bodies must be changed. This is, this is not all there is. Good thing, huh? Right? So he, Paul begins this section. He's already been talking uh, this whole chapter about the reality of who Jesus is, that he came and he lived and he died and he really rose again in a real body. And because of this real body, there is this assurance for all those who trust in Jesus that they too, if they die, when they die, they will be assured this resurrected body. And really the earlier portion, the middle portion of 1 Corinthians 15 is when he describes all these bodies. He hints at it a few things here, but the, the really juicy stuff about the bodies to come, see the 10 verses previously. But now he's moving to the end and saying, in light of these future bodies to come, live this way. Because these bodies must be changed. So he says right here, I dare, declare to you, brothers and sisters, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now that would be, if you'd been in 1 Corinthians 15, you'd be a little confused at this point because you've just spent the whole time saying, that is what goes into the new age, a real body with flesh and blood. And now you're saying, flesh and blood does not inherit. It would be really confusing. 
But you realize what he's talking about. He's talking about this body, this flesh, this blood, this, this, and then he goes on to say, this can't inherit this eternal, immortal, uh, indivisible kingdom. He can't because these bodies, they're perishable. They're broken. They're not full. They're not the bodies that you need to inherit the kingdom of God. And it's talking about this future kingdom, the kingdom when God remakes heaven and earth. And we come to dwell on this new space where Jesus is king of all. And you don't even need any artificial light anymore. The glory of God is just so rich and so vibrant that it's like always day. It's like Alaska in June, you know, always day, just full of light, full of glory. But these bodies won't make it. He says these bodies are perishable, not imperishable. These bodies, these bodies are mortal, or see, these bodies are mortal, not immortal. There's something wrong with them. Makes you think of the, you know, when they're out in space and they said, Houston, we have a problem. Well, how bad is it? Because I think sometimes we all kind of know that we struggle or we know that there's something wrong. And so every now and again, I have to go back to a passage in Romans to remember how bad it is, like how necessary the change is. So if you just have a Bible, go to Romans 3, starting near verse 10. Um, the reason I go back to this passage is because I can start thinking I'm not that bad, or I can start thinking I don't need much Jesus. And so I go back to Romans 3.10 over and over to get the appropriate diagnosis of where, where, where I am, where humanity is. How bad is it? Houston, we have a problem. Well, how big's the problem? How serious is the issue? And what Paul does in the book of Romans, beginning in verse 10, is through the Holy Spirit, he just strings together all sorts of Old Testament passages about humanity. He puts them all together like, you know, it's the systematic theology from the Old Testament now contained in these seven, eight verses so you can know, well, how bad is the problem? How necessary is it for new bodies? Why can't this flesh and this blood, why is this body not good enough for the kingdom to come? And so he just explains. And all he's doing, he's quoting verse after verse after verse. He says, as it is written in verse 10. So it's the good way to know he's going to quote the Old Testament. Quote, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who's really seeking God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, And misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Paul summarizes this condition. Now these are his words. He's no longer quoting the Old Testament. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced. And the whole world held held accountable to God. That idea that we may be silenced is that none of us have this excuse. Oh, but me, no, not you, all of us. This is our condition, this is where we are. 
Uh, Jesus tells in, uh, a parable in uh, Matthew 22 about this big wedding feast and people are getting invited into the wedding feast. Uh, but then there's someone there and he's not wearing the wedding clothes. I pick up in verse 11. It says, A king arrived and when he came in to see the guests, he noticed the man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friends? And the man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, this is a, there's different interpretations of this passage, but a couple of ideas are pretty certain. Is one, uh, the man didn't show respect to the king to make sure that they had the appropriate clothes on. Some scholars will say that the clothes are actually provided for by the king when you come to the wedding. But regardless, the man thought he was fine in his own garb. He thought he could just show up, receive the wedding, which is the picture of the kingdom of God to come, and be, I'm fine. But when the king before him, the glorious king, actually rises in his full regalia, in his presence, the man no longer has the excuse. He's silenced. Every now and again, uh, we'll be going to a wedding or maybe a funeral, and uh, we have four kids, and uh, they will uh, attire themselves for this, these important days. And so they come up, and we look at what they're wearing, and we have to say those famous words that every parent have said to their children. Well, you can't wear that. You can't wear that. In this valley of tears that we're walking through, uh, these bodies that are broken are not enough. If we stay in these clothes, we will just go into a deeper valley. We have to go to the king. We have to cry out for new bodies. We've got to cry out for new clothes. We've got to ask to be changed. And they're like, well, and then some people might ask the question, well, how long do I got? Well, you know, can I, can I bide my time and make a decision right before I die on whether I want to go to the king and ask to be changed or for Jesus to forgive me and to cleanse me? And if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul indicates that uh, the end is going to come quickly and unexpectedly. He says, verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We're not going to all sleep, uh, but we'll all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So Jesus is going to return one day as a second coming of Christ where he comes in glory and power. He came humbly in a manger the first time and he came to live and to die for his people. When he returns, he comes as a conquering king for his people. We don't know the exact hour. We don't know the exact day. No matter what YouTube expert tries to give you a day or a date, they're wrong. But we do know that when Jesus comes, it's going to come as fast as the blink of an eye. It says there's going to be a trumpet. The trumpet all throughout the Old Testament. It's imagery for both judgment and victory. Judgment and victory. Judgment for God's enemies and victory for God's people. And so here's the thing. You will not prepare for the return of Jesus, the glorious kingdom to come, by reading the newspaper or some book you pick up at a Christian bookstore, or by watching the horizon. Here's the thing that Paul wants you to know. 
our preparation for Jesus' return is done at the soul and heart level. This flesh, this body, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, at the heart and soul level, you cry out to the one who can prepare your body for the world to come, who can change you to make you right. And what Paul's going to go on now and say is our only hope for this is putting it solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the first reality that we have to get is these bodies, they've got to be changed. In this valley of tears, these bodies are not enough. And so the second interlocking reality now is our only hope is Jesus. So he goes on in verse 54, and he's talking about this future moment where bodies are totally changed. Verse 54, when the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written, quoting again the Old Testament, death has been swallowed up in victory. So the Old Testament has pointed forward, and now Paul is saying it's going to come true, that one day death is going to be so swallowed up in the victory of Jesus at his final return. Right now we still see death. We go to funerals. People get sick. One day that's going to be all gone. Quotes another passage. One day we're going to be saying, where, oh, death is your victory. Won't that be great? We just look around and be like, death's gone. And no longer, you know, I lost my dad almost three years ago. It's smart. It's any moment my kids go through, any moment I go through, I feel like death's still winning a bit. <laughs> I look for the day when death has no more victories, has no more wins. Someday we're going to say, where, oh, death is your sting. Wouldn't it be great if you could go outside with all these wasps in the heat and not be afraid that they could sting you? You could ask my kids, I am such a chicken with wasps. Like, I walked out on my back porch one day to kill one, and it, like, zoomed right at me. I was like, ah! You know? <laughs> they love to tell that story. Um, there's a day when death won't have a sting anymore. It won't, have, it won't be able to bite. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57, though, says, this is why our hope is in Jesus. Thanks be to God. He, God, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's this victory that comes through the Lord, uh, trusting in him, a victory that's, he does all of the work and then we share in that by faith. Uh, what, just quickly through some of the words because it says the future victory is now based on a past work. So we have this victory, this victory that's coming through a past work. And it's talking about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. But what's the victory over? Well, verse 56 throws you know, the big three, sin, death, and the law. We need victory through these things. In this valley of tears, we have problems. The law, death, and sin. So let's talk a little bit about this, because the first one's very strange. Like law, why is law a problem? Law is a good thing. The term law has you know, two major connotations in the Bible. The first being that the law is God's moral standard flowing from his character. That's, and that means it's good and it's always good. His goodness is known in the law. But the second idea throughout Scripture of what the law is, it's usually referring to the Mosaic law, the things you read in the, you know, the Ten Commandments and those very fun books, Leviticus and Exodus. Um, 
that was specifically given to God's people to leave no shadow, with leave no doubt that we fall short of God's holy standards. To expose the nakedness, to expose the need for new dress, to expose the need for new bodies. And so what happens with the law, even though the law is good and reflects God's moral character, we're not good. So with the law, what, the, what does the law do to us? Well, it becomes judge, jury, and executioner. And so we need to be freed from that law. Second, we need victory over sin. I always like people who talk about that sin has two kind of qualities. The first idea is sin, very singular. We have a problem with sin, and sin is that inner me, that inner diabolical, selfish me. Any of you guys familiar with the Brian Regan, the comedian? If you're not, I encourage you to check out YouTube. But he talks about the me monster, so that if you're at a party and you start telling a story, uh, then someone else jumps in and tries to tell a story that's a little cooler than your story. And then he's talking about, you know, me, you, me, you, me, 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 me. You know, this me monster just comes up. That, that's sin. And it's there. Because even if you don't say it out loud, you're like, man, I got such a better story than that, dude. But what happens with sin is it leads to sins. Out of this selfishness and pride and confidence in our own understanding, then we act out. We act out with lies, and we act out with self-promotion, and we act out with self-preservation and self-pleasuring, and keyword self, self, self. So the me monster just flows out, and it brings destruction to our lives, it brings destruction to others. And it, it, it talks about sin, it, it, you know, it, 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 it has this stinger to it that's like a scorpion stinger, and it stings us so that we die. And that's the third major problem that we need help from. And Christ is our only hope. Death refers to the disconnection from life. And what is more alive than God? Nothing, because life flows from God. So death is separation from God, separation from everything that is good and right and beautiful. Many of you are familiar with like 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about love is patient and kind, slow to anger, abounding in love, not self-seeking, like, that's life, that's beauty, that's glory. Death is the separation from all those things. This is why hell is hell, is because you are separated from life and God, beauty, justice, forever. And the only way that we can escape death is if someone dies for us. Jesus takes the scorpion stinger in himself so that it the scorpion can't sting ever again. And he's the only one who's ever defeated death. A lot of religious founders in the world, dead, dead, and dead. Even if they wrote good things, even if they've helped many people, they're all dead. Jesus faces death, says he's going to face death, <laughs> faces it, is crucified, dead, and buried, 1 Corinthians 15, early verses, and then he rose again three days later. That's the gospel. That's our hope. Someone conquers death for me. It was prophesied, now it's happened. And this is why, like in many of Paul's letters, he starts singing in the middle of his letter. 
thanks be to God, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like he's just singing like this, this is victory. Our hope is here, we can trust him. Because of Jesus, victory is assured. And because victory is assured, we can now live with a different kind of end in mind. In this valley of tears, there is a mountain coming. That's the idea. Like, if you have no hope, you're just in the valley of tears. You're caught in this dark valley with predators all around you, and you're going to end there. But if the enemies have been defeated, and there's an eternal future secured by Jesus you look up and you say, there's an end to this. There's, there's hope for this. This is why when you come to verse 58, it says, your work matters. Your work in the Lord, for the Lord, it matters forever and ever and ever. God's going to make this stuff matter. So I'm going to read verse 58 again, and then we'll jump into this final verse. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's talk about this expression, labor in the Lord. That's what's not in vain. Labor in the Lord. Now the expression in the Lord is one of Paul's favorite expressions. The idea of being united to Jesus Christ in our life. And union with Christ is this, this idea, it's about communion, um, Sometimes it's like in the marriage. Sometimes it sounds almost like a symbiotic, organic relationship. Uh, but because of union with, God, union with Christ, we can know God personally. Because of union with Christ, our sins are forgiven. Because of union with Christ, we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We derive fellowship with God because of union with Christ. And we derive power from God because of union with Christ. And so this is why when our work is done in communion with Jesus Christ, in relationship with him, it lasts forever. The Son of God is connected to the eternal power and incorruptible glory. And so when we do things in that power, we can be certain that it never fades, it never dies, and it never ends. Much of the work we do in the world fades. I'm reading a book right now about the World's Fair in Chicago at the end of the 19th century. Like, nothing's left from that mega-million enterprise. Like, a few little things here and there. I mean, it's gone. Like, but the stuff that we do in and for the Lord lasts forever. I love how uh, a former, arch, uh, former bishop of Durham named N.T. Wright, this is how he describes the works that matter. He says this, Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. It matters. It's totally worth it. Much of our life as Christians feels like failed endeavors. What I mean by that is you, you, you have a heart for a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, and you want to maybe speak the name of Jesus and tell them about the hope of salvation. 
And uh, maybe you walk to their cubicle. They're not even there that day. They're sick. You're like, man, that took like 40 days of courage and prayer just to go. They're not even there. Or you speak the name of Jesus over, over a meal with a family member and they just roll their eyes at you. Speak the, the gospel of Jesus Christ about the hope of salvation and they just say, that might be good for you, but these labors in the Lord one day will have this marvelous, glorious victory. It's assured. Let me warn you, and you can spend time looking at this another time, but if we don't live with this kind of end in mind that these things matter, that it's totally worth it, we'll live for something else. When Paul writes uh, Philippians chapter 3, he warns that people are enemies of the gospel. And he says their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Here's Paul's fear. If we don't live with the end in mind, if we don't live in light of the resurrected Jesus Christ and the future resurrection of God's people, we'll live for our stomachs now. Let's talk about our instant pleasures talking about the foods we eat, the drinks we drink, the shows we watch, the vacations we go on. We'll make our stomachs, our pleasures, our God. Because it's immediate. It delivers quickly. We'll set our mind on what the earth can provide. But then he turns the corner at the end of Philippians chapter 3 and he says, but... Don't live like that. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. The sacrifices we give now, the friends that we might lose now, the vacations we postpone until glory. I'm pretty sure traveling in the new heaven and new earth, it's going to be more comfortable than flying coach. Jesus just appeared and disappeared. That sounds great. Gordon Fee, a scholar, once said, there is a genuine relationship between what what one believes about the future and how one behaves in the present. So let's be honest. No one in their right mind thought the Cubs were going to win the World Series a couple of years ago. Even you people from Illinois. You knew it was as funny to you as it was to everyone else in the country. You know, but then this strange thing happened. Picked up Zobrist, who's married to an Iowan, by the way. Um, but this unlikely thing happens, right? They win. And so you know what happened the next few days and weeks and months, and for some sake, they keep going. They start telling these little stories. You know, I bought an Andre Dawson car for $5 in 1986. And so, ah, oh, I went to my first Wrigley game for 5 bucks, $3. I remember, you know what, I remember staying up late listening to the radio, and they start recount, retelling these stories. What are they doing? They're sharing their little investments into the Cubs that they've made over the years. They're little investments. Now with smiles, they're remembering that all these sacrifices, all these years of difficulty were totally worth it. Because they're sharing in this victory that, you know, nine players on a field did for you. (laughs) 
This is, this, is just a, this is, though, just a glimmer of what it means to believe the promises of God in Scripture. What we're going to be doing in the new heaven and new earth is we're going to be telling these little stories about how hard this was, but now it's worth it. About the doors we knocked on, the friends we talked to, about the nights we stayed up for friends or family, for the sick, the monies we gave away to nations that no one had heard about. You're going to tell those stories, and you're going to revel in the joy. So then, therefore, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing, nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because your labor is in the Lord, not in vain. Not in vain. Father, thanks for this church family. Thank you for their many labors in the Lord for many decades. Thank you for the labors they're engaged in right now in the name of Jesus for his sake so that others might know. Hold them. Hold them by the truth. Do not let their gods be their stomach. Do not let their eyes be set on earthly things. Rather, as the song says, I pray that the things of this world will grow great, strangely dim in the light of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.